fellow students, if you would open to Acts 3, Acts chapter 3, we're going to put our running shoes on today, try and get through two chapters uh, today um, and give you an overview. Um, let me give you a little historical context of where we are in the scheme of things. Jesus, remember, ascended 40 days after his resurrection. We celebrated Resurrection Sunday last week. During that 40-day period, uh, from his resurrection to his ascension, he really taught his disciples everything they would need to know in order to carry on his ministry after he was in heaven. He had promised that when he went back to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit to guide them and direct them to empower them in order to fulfill that ministry. In Acts 2, a couple of weeks ago, we covered the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, of course, means 50. So Pentecost occurred 50 days after Jesus' ascension. That was the birthday of the church. Acts 2 also records that after Peter and the 120 believers were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches a powerful sermon. The Holy Spirit empowers that. There are 3,000 people that come to faith in one day. So the church goes from 120 believers to 3,000 new baby Christians in one day. So that we talked last week about that being every pastor's uh, dream and every pastor's nightmare at the same time. How do you take care of 3,000 brand new believers at one time? Last week we talked about the five priorities of the church and we noted in, in chapter 2 that the, the church devoted themselves to studying the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. They did everything together. They ate together, they prayed together, they financially provided for each other's needs, they met the needs of those outside the body, they worshipped together, so it was really life together in this brand new church. As a result, many, many people who were watching the believers in this new body love each other they decided to follow Jesus as well. Now, Acts 3, where we're going to be in today, records a miracle that the Holy Spirit used to attract even more attention to the body of Christ. And that miracle in chapter 3 is the healing of the lame man, and it's the first of 14 separate miracles listed in the book of Acts. There are 14 miracles in Acts. Know that God has performed miracles throughout Scripture but in biblical history, there's really three periods of time in biblical history where God used, chose to dramatically use selected servants of his to perform multiple miracles. There's three periods of biblical history where we see a lot of miracles recorded in scripture. The first one is the period of Moses and Joshua. We saw the 10 plagues of Egypt. Remember the crossing of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, etc., etc. So we had a lot of miracles in that period of time. The second period is the period of Elijah and Elisha. As a matter of fact, Elisha did more recorded miracles in the Bible than anybody other than Jesus Christ himself. There are 16 separate recorded miracles in the life of Elisha. And the third period of time in biblical history where we see an enormous amount of miracle activity is during the period of Jesus Christ and the apostles. Now these periods of time where you see a lot of physical miracles also correspond to a period of time where God is bringing new revelation to humanity. So remember the purpose of miracles, among other things, is to authenticate God's message. So when God sends a message through his prophets in the Old Testament, how do you know that that message is really from God and it's not just a human opinion? God will perform physical miracles, supernatural fingerprints of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate to the people who are watching that yes, this word is from God. And that's one of the things we're gonna to see today. The miracle today <clears throat> occurs 
in a very specific location, and I'm going to ask Rob to throw a slide up on the screen that talks about the diagram of Herod's temple. We're going to read here in a couple of minutes in chapter 3 that we have a, a man crippled from birth. He's begging by a very heavily traveled gate into the temple, and that gate is called the, the beautiful gate. So if you look at item number one on the screen, that's the women's court. Item number two on the screen, if you follow the numbers, that's the court of the Israelites. We're moving closer into the holy place. Number three is the court of the priests. Number four is the beautiful gate, and that's the assumption where this particular, it's either gate number three or four, or gate number five. It's either the beautiful gate or the Nicander gate. The commentaries I've read says where this man was sitting to receive alms, if you will. Now, he was not allowed inside the temple. He was born crippled, and anybody with a congenital deformity was prohibited from actually entering the temple, but he could sit at the gate. Now, if you were a beggar, the strategic place to beg was near the entrance to a place of worship. Because people go into a place of worship to do what? To meet with God, right? Do you think they would tend to be more generous or less generous if you're there begging before they go in to meet with God? Probably more generous, especially if you follow a, a, a works-based religion, which Judaism was at this point in time, to some degree, at least under the pharisaical system. So they're likely to be more generous. Now today, we have people begging today pretty routinely too. Now they carry their signs near traffic signals. Why would they carry their sign near traffic signals? Because you have to stop. And they make eye contact with you. They hope to make eye contact with you and ask for donations. Today we call it panhandling. Uh, Marin and I and Mia were in San Francisco last August and the panhandlers in San Francisco don't hold out a tin cup and say nothing. They are aggressive. They will come after you and solicit funds with an intent that you should be doing this and you owe them, et cetera, et cetera. So this man wasn't standing up. He was sitting at a heavily traveled gate into the temple and he was begging for alms. That's money. He had probably been begging for years from this same location. This was a prime strategic location because it was a he very heavily traveled gate at that point in time. And Peter and John in chapter 3 verse 1 are going into the temple to pray at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now as we talked about last week there were three hours of prayer, preset hours of prayer in the, in the system of Judaism. 9 a.m. was the, obviously the first hour of prayer, 12 noon, second hour of prayer, 3 p.m., third hour of prayer. There were two sacrifices in the temple, one at 9 o'clock in the morning, one at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So there were at least two major hours of prayer. You went in to pray at 9 o'clock in the morning, you went in to pray at 3 in the afternoon. Peter and John are going in at 3, at 3 in the afternoon, which is the time of the evening sacrifice, and this lame man asked them for money. Now, question. Why would a lame man ask Peter and John for money? Can't work. Can't work. Why else? What did he think he needed? Money, right? We ask for what we think we need. Does he really need money? What he really needs is not money. What he really needs is healing. He doesn't ask to be healed. <laughs> Because in his mind, that is not even a possibility. Here's the principle. Our father knows best. There was an old movie, series, right? 
Doug television series called Father Knows Best. Our Father Knows Best, He gives us what He knows we need, not just what we think we need. Amen? Amen. Now, how do we, if you want to know what you think you need, tape record your prayer requests. Come back and listen to them six months from now. It will reveal what you thought you needed when you prayed the prayer because that's what we generally do. We ask God for what we think we need. Now, in chapter 3, verse 6, Peter says to this lame man, I do not possess silver and gold. Well, he doesn't because everybody's communally living at that point in time. All the money went into a common pot. But what I do have, I give to you. Now, if you were the, if you were the lame man and that's as far as the sentence went, you go... Not going to be much today. This guy doesn't have any silver and gold, but what he has, he's going to give me. What's that, a stick of gum? I mean, what does he have? In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Verse 8 tells us the outcome. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So he asked for money which is what he thought he needed, and he received much more than money. What he received is a whole new life. See, we're like this crippled man. We are born crippled in sin. He was born crippled. We, like this man, are begging from the scraps of life. You look around the world at lost people, and what do they do? They're chasing the scraps of life. Money, sex, power, popularity, position, health, wealth, right? All the things that they think they need, all the things that they think God should give them, and like this man, we ask God for what we think we need. Peace, prosperity, comfort, health, family, friends. Nothing wrong with asking the Lord, but what Jesus does, he reaches out, he touches us, he heals us, and he gives us what? Money. Right? That's what the health and wealth people would tell you you should ask for. Jesus gives us himself. That's the greatest treasure in all the world. We ask Jesus for all this stuff, and he says, I know what you need. What you need is me. That's the great treasure. Jesus' priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure. He told the parable of the pearl of great price. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Nothing in this world, no matter how much of it you have, will ever compare. Ephesians 3.20, Paul writes, and he gives us just a little glimpse this verse was Maren's life verse. I think it's written inside your wedding ring, right, hon? I think it is. Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him who is able, that's God, to do, get out Ephesians 3.20, underline this, sometime this week, many of you are going to look at this verse and you're going to have to claim this. Ephesians 3.20. Now him who is able to do, that's talking about God, exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, Ephesians 3.20, according to the power that works in us. Some of you this week, and it'll probably be me too, are going to run into situations where we're going to need to ask God for things that we can't even imagine. And we will ask God for answers, and he will give us beyond what we can ask or think. Now, the power that works in you is who? The Holy Spirit. You have God himself living in you as a Christian. Is there any limitation on what God can do? Is there any limitation on what the Holy Spirit in you can do? 
So you shouldn't have a problem. We shouldn't have a problem asking God for things. He says, I'm your heavenly father. Come and ask me. But we need to understand that God has far more to give us than what we ask for. He will give us abundantly beyond what we can ask or think. Whatever the problem we face this week, God himself is the solution and his solutions are eternal. This man asked for money and he got a whole new life and that's exactly the promise that we have in Ephesians 3.20. So the question remains, why did God heal this man? And why did he heal him at this precise time? I mean, he'd been crippled for 40 years for heaven's sakes, right? Well, why not heal him 20 years before? First reason Jesus heals, he's a compassionate God. Jesus Christ loves people, he cares about hurting people, and he worked through Peter to bring this healing about. But remember, the purpose of God's miracles are never just to impress people. The purpose of God's miracles are never just to bring physical healing. The purpose of God's miracles, among other things, are to prepare people to hear a message from God and respond to it so that they can live forever. So that they can be healed forever. Because if you're healed from a physical illness here, what does that mean? It means you're going to die again, right? I mean, you may be healed for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but at some point in time, you're going to die. Jesus Christ came that we might have life, eternal life at that point. Now, remember, in chapter 2, Peter had just preached a, a wonderful sermon. He had demonstrated from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ was, in fact, Israel's Messiah. <coughs> he indicted the Jewish rulers for crucifying Jesus. Peter claimed that God had raised Jesus from the dead, and he also claimed that hundreds of people were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Peter then proclaimed in chapter 2 salvation was available to anyone who repented from their sins and trusted Jesus for forgiveness. And now, immediately following that, within a day or two, Jesus performs this miracle through Peter to authenticate that that message was, in fact, from God. Now, verse 8 says, this man went into the temple doing what? Look at your Bibles. You got them in front of you walking and leaping and praising God. And it says in verse 9 and following that a huge crowd knows that this man's been there for 40 years begging or thereabouts, and they are awestruck and they mob Peter and John. So once again, the Holy Spirit has done a miracle to attract a crowd to hear the gospel. Now in this chapter, Peter gives credit to Jesus for the supernatural healing he condemns the Jews for murdering Jesus Christ. And then once again, he gives the message of salvation that says, you repent, believe, turn, follow Jesus Christ, and you will have eternal life. Pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John are preaching this sermon after the miracle of the lame man. What happens? The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed. Now that's a very antiseptic way of saying they were, yeah, um, okay, you get it. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now the priests are the religious officials who officiated all the temple sacrifices. Because the temple, of course, was pretty much a slaughterhouse. They did two sacrifices a day, 9 a.m. and 3. The captain of the temple guard is the second in command 
in the entire Jewish hierarchy. The captain of the temple guard is number two after the high priest. Number two. He really runs the uh, police force for the temple. The, the temple police force was responsible for the security of the temple. So we have the priests, we have the, the uh, 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 captain of the guard, and we have the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees are, are the, really the wealthy political elite. In our terms, we would call them the establishment. They are the establishment political party, uh, one of the political parties who ran Israel at that point in time, and they are political allies of Rome. So they are loyal to Rome probably even more than Israel at that point in time. Israel is occupied by Rome at this point, and any Jews that are in positions of authority have to compromise with Rome or they don't keep their political position. Some things don't change, right? The Sadducees are sad, you see. You've heard that before, right? Sad, you see. They believe that only the first five books of the Bible were inspired. The Pentateuch was inspired. Moses' books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Everything else in the Old Testament was just commentary. It was just human commentary. It wasn't considered inspired. They only believed the first five books of the Bible. And since the Pentateuch says nothing about the resurrection, they didn't buy the resurrection either. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. It says they were greatly disturbed. They were angry with Peter and John. First reason they were angry, Peter and John are teaching the people. Whose job is it to teach the people? The priests, right? So they're taking their job description. Peter and John are these fishermen from up north Galilee. They're uneducated. They're uncouth. They drop their vowels, they can't speak well, and they're teaching the people, and that's their job. Secondly, where are they doing the teaching? Yeah, right out in the temple courtyard. Whose turf is that? That's their turf. You know what that's like? That's like you and 5,000 of your best Christian friends going to a Jewish synagogue, invading the place and saying, we're going to set up a Bible study here. Uh, it's not really your turf. So the priests are pretty angry because they've got a huge crowd. They're teaching them and they're inside the temple on their turf. And they are teaching them that Jesus, whom they crucified, only months before is risen from the dead. Now here's the picture. The Sanhedrin, the highest court in Israel, had condemned and killed for their promised Messiah. God himself had raised the Messiah from the dead. And in essence, this teaching tells all the people, your leadership, the Sanhedrin, is at war with God. They claim to serve God, they're really at war with God. You can understand why the Sadducees would be really, really, really in trouble. Because if thousands of common people are following Jesus, what happens to the power base of the Jewish leadership? What happens to it? They lose it. Are we seeing something similar like that today? some political battles going on. I'm not going to be naming names or any of that stuff, but I want you to understand that some things never change. The human desire for power and control over people hasn't changed in thousands of years, and it's not going to change. Only Jesus Christ can change human hearts. Chapter 4, verse 3. They came upon them, they were very angry, and they did what? It says they laid hands on them. That is not a massage. That is arresting them. If they had tasers, they'd have used them. They laid hands on them, put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. And you say, well, I don't get that. 
Well, Jewish law prohibited any trial from taking place after dark. The Sanhedrin, by the way, that's the kind of the leadership, they kind of conveniently neglected that when they tried Jesus, right? I mean, he had six illegal trials and all of them were after dark at that point in time. So this was only months before. So they were probably held in the Antonia Fortress. The Antonia Fortress was the Roman garrison and it was right next to the temple. I mean, they literally had the temple courtyard, as Rob showed you a few minutes ago. The Antonia Fortress butted up right against to it. It's a multi-story fortress, garrison. And they put, the Romans put that garrison there because the temple courtyard had been the site of more bloodshed, more insurrections, more revolutions than any other spot in Israel. If you want to get people angry, get into a religious war with them. Same thing. So they had soldiers on the spot right next to the temple, 24 by 7. So that's where they're held in prison. Verse 4 says, But many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now the text doesn't say 5,000 men generic. It says 5,000 males. So if you add women to that, potentially children to that, it's estimated that at this point in time in Jerusalem, you now have about 20,000 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And this has happened in a matter of days, very, very quickly. If you're the Jewish leadership, this thing is just mushrooming on you and you're terrified because your power base is evaporating. It's a big, big, big problem. The more people that follow Jesus, the less people follow them. Verse five, it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Now they use the word rulers and elders and scribes. They're really talking about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin really was the combination of the Jewish Senate and the Jewish Supreme Court. So it's like you take the, our House of Representatives and our Senate and you marry them up with the Supreme Court and you have one body, legislative and judicial body, that's the Sanhedrin. They really had all the power in Israel at this point in time. Now the Mosaic Law had commanded that anytime someone performed a miracle and then used that miracle as a basis for teaching, the Sanhedrin was a body responsible to examine that person to determine whether that teaching was of God. So the Sanhedrin's probably on pretty good course here to say there's a teaching occurring on the basis of a miracle, we need to evaluate it. That's what they were in the process of doing. If the teaching led people away from the God of Israel, they stoned the prophet, because they were a false prophet. I mean, they stoned him with rocks, right? Until they were dead. We call it terminated with extreme prejudice. That's exactly what would happen. If the teaching of this new prophet was congruent with prior revelation, then the message was accepted as from God, right? So it was, a, it was a process of checking to see whether someone came and did a miracle and gave a teaching that was incongruent with the Bible. You know why that's so important? Who else does miracles besides God? Satan, Satan's supernatural. Satan counterfeits miracles routinely. That's why your ultimate judgment about what is true has nothing to do with miracles, it has to do with the book, right? If it's not written in here, it ain't true. Amen? Amen? If it is written in here, it is true. Right? So we have objective truth written in black and white. 
Don't ever believe a doctrine based on a miracle. If it doesn't agree with scripture, you already know it's not true. And you know the deceivers out there actively at work. Now the Sanhedrin, the combination of the Supreme Court and the Senate consists of 70 men plus the high priest. The high priest is kind of the deciding vote. He's the presiding officer as well. And there are two main parties in this Sanhedrin, the Democrats and the Republicans. I'm sorry. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. We really have two political, religious parties involved in the Sanhedrin. Who had the, the Sadducees were the wealthy, the aristocrats, the moneyed crowd, and they supported Rome because their power base came from Rome. The second group was the Pharisees, and they were much more nationalistic. They were much more Israel first, Rome, yeah, we got to put up with them, but we're not allied with them. And they were the legal experts. The Pharisees were the legal experts on the law. They knew the law, and most of them had the doggone thing memorized. These two groups both opposed Jesus. Both were influential in persuading Rome to crucify Jesus. Now, the Sanhedrin normally met in a hall in the southwest corner of this temple courtyard called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. So it was a chamber that was hewn out of rock. That's where their meeting chamber was. Verse 6 tells us who was there that day. If you look at verse 6, it gives you some names. Annas the high priest was there, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all of those who were of high priestly descent. Now, you need to know that Annas is the ex-high priest. He's the former high priest. He's kind of like the, an ex-president, you know, a former president. Annas had held office from 6 to 15 AD, and right now we're probably 34, 35 AD, within months after Jesus' death, 33 AD, I guess. So Annas hasn't been in power for about 18 years, but he's really the power behind the throne. He's really the power broker in this whole arrangement. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. Caiaphas married Annas' daughter, right? So he's got political connections as well, and he was the one who was the high priest during the trial of Jesus. Caiaphas was in power at that point in time. So at this point in time, the governor, the Roman governor of Palestine appointed the high priest. It was a political post. Was that how God originally designed it? It was a familial post. The son of the high priest was the high priest and so forth. It was a, in other words, it wasn't an elected position. It was, a, it was an inherited position on the basis of ancestry. But now it was a crass political post. Let me tell you how bad it was. From 6 AD to 66 AD, 60 years, there were nine high priests. Eight of them were relatives of Annas. Most of them were his kids or grandkids, right? Eight out of the nine. This was a family <clears throat> post. When you read the history of how they operated, it was like a religious mafia. Truly. They used religious authority to control people, to control wealth. The high priesthood at this point was very lucrative because they controlled all the money changing and all the sale of sacrificial animals. Remember all the Jews had to come and do sacrifices? Who was the one who put the stamp on the sacrifices said this is appropriate to put on the altar? the high priest. So if you brought your animal for sacrifice and they said, unacceptable, you got to buy one of ours, do you think you paid retail for that animal? You paid retail plus 20%, 30%. Very lucrative. Once again, unfortunately, we got a huge amount of money working here. You know the old political line, follow the money? 
Some things never change, right? So this group, a lot of family members on this council, verse 7, placed Peter and John in the center and they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? Now I want you to get the picture. There's 71 of these characters in a room and Peter and John are in the middle of a circle and they're surrounded by 71 of the finest legal religious minds in Israel and these guys are fishermen. They've never been to rabbi, rabbinical school. They don't know the Jewish law very well, and they certainly don't know the religious law very well. Their intent is to intimidate them. They want to shut Peter and John down. They want them to shut up and go away and be quiet, and they're trying to intimidate them. And they're very good at this, because if you remember in the Gospels, many, many people had said believed in Jesus, but they were afraid of confessing him publicly, because why? This group would excommunicate you. They'd throw you out of the synagogue. At that point in time, if you were a Jewish observer, if you observed Jewish law, to be put out of the synagogue was what? It was to be condemned to hell. It's the same thing as the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval period would threaten excommunication. Excommunication says, if we throw you out of the church, we throw you into hell. That was the power of the political religious establishment at that point in time, and this Sanhedrin was using this all throughout Jesus' ministry to shut people up because a lot of people said Jesus is the Christ, but if I say that publicly, they're going to throw me out of the synagogue and I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. Okay? Obviously, Jesus Christ came to save people from that kind of religious dogmatism, but nonetheless, that was the belief system at that point in time. They used the fear of hell to control the people. And one of the reasons they got so angry is Jesus said to people, you don't go to heaven or hell based on what the Sanhedrin says or based on the sacrificial system. You come to God directly through me. Now, if you're a religious group that makes a lot of money by making people come through you, what are you going to do? You're going to kill the messenger. And that's exactly what they did with Jesus. So the Sanhedrin thinks they're in control. However, if you were strategically wanting to get the gospel to this Supreme Court and Senate of Israel, and you wanted all 71 of them in a room to hear the gospel presented, how would you do it? You'd do exactly what the Holy Spirit did. You would arrange a miracle, and you would arrange for Peter and John to be arrested. You would arrange for Peter and John to get thrown in jail. And you would arrange for all 71 of these men to hear the message from Peter and John right there. It's an opportunity. What I want you to see here is God does that in our lives all the time. Many, many times we experience things at the time that we think are negative. Could be a fender bender. Could be something at work. Could be some health. Could be some family. Whatever it happens to be. God has an agenda behind that. Yes? A spiritual agenda. Here's the problem. Most of the time we don't figure it out till months later. Oh, that's what you wanted to do. I was asleep. Yeah. You were being selfish. Yeah, I've missed those things. I probably miss 80% of them now. So Peter and John could have been sitting there going, we got arrested. The most powerful group in Israel wants to shut us up. Is that what happens? Go to verse 8. 
Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Now remember, at the trial of Jesus, was Peter a coward or was he a lion? He was a coward. He denied knowing Jesus in front of a little servant girl, right? Now he's courageous in confronting the most powerful group in Israel with the claims of Christ. This is the very same group that only months before had condemned Jesus to death. What you don't understand, and I don't understand until we understand the history of this, is Peter and John are now on trial for their life. They condemn Jesus to death for this exact same message. Peter is going to confront this group, and he knows he's taking his life in his hands. Does that require courage? It requires supernatural courage. The only explanation for this radical change in Peter is the first phrase. It says, Peter is now filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we in Ephesians 5 are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It actually says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now to be filled with alcohol is to be controlled with alcohol, right? To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. A Spirit-controlled person says, thy will be done, not my will be done. A Spirit-controlled person is humble. A person who's filled with the Spirit is depending on the Lord to lead them. They're not depending on their own wisdom. They're not depending on their own brilliance. They're not depending on their own will to get this done. We all like the power that comes from the Spirit, but if you want to be under the control of the Holy Spirit, you have to surrender that will, correct? You have to say, thy will be done and mean it. That means you have to let the Lord run your calendar instead of you running your calendar. One of the things I've had to learn, and I'm still learning, and I'm such a slow learner, I have uh, an agenda for every day because <clears throat> I tend to be kind of a maniac on goals. Uh, I have an agenda of what I want to do, and I think it's a wonderful list. You know who's not too impressed with that list? The Holy Spirit's not too impressed with that list. And one of the things I am learning is to give God the right to interrupt that schedule anytime he wants. To give God the right to take those appointments and cancel them. We were, I was worried this week about having enough time to prepare, and the Lord does this virtually every week in my life. Um, I'm saying, Lord, I don't know when we're going to find the hours to, uh, to get the lesson prepped. We've got a lot of things on the calendar. So there's two cancellations on Friday. He says, go study. I gave you two hours. Don't waste the time. Go do something with it. So when the Lord interrupts your schedule, he has an agenda for it. And the person who interrupts us, we generally get frustrated with, and the Lord wants us to minister to most of the time, correct? So we have to surrender that. We have to say, don't you know I have an agenda? This is a good agenda. And the Lord says, I've got this person. I'm going to bring him into your life, and I want you to minister to him. You go, fine, let me, give me some warning. He didn't give any warning. They just call, right? He wants you to be flexible, right? That's being filled with the Spirit. It's being submissive to the Spirit. It's being obedient to the Spirit. It's trusting in the Lord to lead you. And when you're filled with the Spirit, the Lord can work through you. Now, there's something very critical here that is not mentioned. It doesn't tell us anything between the arrest, when they were thrown in jail, and the next morning when Peter confronts them. What do you think Peter and John were doing in jail all night before the trial? You sure? What do you think they were praying for? 
You think they're praying, oh God, save me. This is the Supreme Court. These people could put me in prison. Verse 29 tells you what they were thinking about. But that's, that's post-trial. That's post-trial. I suspect it was pre-trial as well. What would you be praying for if you were on trial for your life? And the trial started within 12 hours. You know what I'm talking about, sister. Samuel Johnson once said, depend on it, sir. When a man knows he's going to be hanged in a fortnight, that's two weeks, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. You know, when you're on your deathbed and you know you're on your deathbed, if you have that opportunity, I promise you, you will not be worried about your trans fat, your triglycerides, your cholesterol. You will not be talking to God about getting the car washed or any of that stuff. You'll be prioritized. You'll be talking, thinking about what's important, what's life and death. Now, Jesus had promised his disciples in Luke 21, verse 12 to 15, Luke 21, 12 to 15, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you. And they, meaning the Jewish leaders, will deliver you to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So when God invades your life and interrupts your schedule, he probably has some spiritual business for you to be taken care of. Don't go to sleep on the wheel in that. Verse 14. So in the fact, when you get arrested, you get thrown in jail, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand about what you're going to say. Make up your minds not to defend yourself. In other words, don't trust in yourself. Verse 15 is the promise. For I will give you utterance, that's words, and I will give you wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. He's basically saying, when you're called on trial for the sake of the gospel, you probably do what Peter and John did. You spend the night praying, asking the Lord to give you the words that he wants you to say. And baby, does he ever do it. When you read this next verse, 9, Peter says, elders and leaders of the people, verse 9. If we are on trial for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, you know what Peter's telling him? Since when has it been a crime to do good for someone in need? You're trying us for healing a sick man. Really? The tables are being turned. See, the, the Sanhedrin's wanting to put the apostles on trial. God, the Holy Spirit, is using Peter to put the Sanhedrin on trial. Peter is saying, if you're putting us on trial for doing a good deed, you're an unjust court. You are incompetent and incapable of being a moral authority in this land because you're trying us for doing a good deed, which is healing a sick man. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by this name, this man stands before you in good health. You ask by what power this man has been healed only in the name of and by the power of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Now, these guys are on trial for their life and they're going, you crucified him. You think that takes some courage, right? Some faith. By the way, the God whom you claim to serve, Sanhedrin, is the father of Jesus the Nazarene whom you killed. If you claim to serve God, don't kill his son. Right? That's not a good way to impress a father by killing his son, right? God the Father vindicated this son, Jesus, by raising him from the dead. And the proof of Jesus' resurrection power is standing right in front of you. 
This lame man who's been lame for 40 years is at the trial with him and he's standing up in very good health. He's physical evidence of the power of Almighty God. Irrefutable evidence. Peter goes on. He said, Jesus Christ is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but has become the very cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118.22. He's saying that Jesus, the death of Jesus Christ was prophesied centuries before and Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected and was the Sanhedrin rejected him. But God made his son, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Now you need to understand, in the building trades back in the day, the cornerstone was the largest, most solid, heaviest, and almost certainly the biggest stone that they put at the key corner of the building. So the cornerstone is a metaphor for the foundation. The cornerstone is the metaphor for the support. The cornerstone is the metaphor for that which anchors, if you will, the entire building. And Peter is saying, Jesus Christ is the anchor. He's the foundation. He's the base. He's the support for everything. And you, brilliant religious leaders, you crucified him. He's in their face, in case you're wondering, right? If I could say this in Hebrew, I would. Stuart, you're going to have to help me. In essence, there is no hope for you outside Jesus Christ himself. Verse 12, he states this and he says, There is salvation, underline this verse, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. Here's the principle. The gospel is exclusive. The one and only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Interesting, um, I just read a little bit about this. Morgan Freeman, the actor, is doing a series on God, right? And he's going to examine the five world religions. He's going to look at Islam. He's going to look at Buddhism. Uh, he's going to look at uh, Judaism. He's going to look at Christianity. He's going to look at, what's the other one I missed? Hinduism. And he's going to, he understands that the core search in all religions is immortality. In other words, it's life after death. It's everlasting life. Every religion except Christianity says that you can attain that through your own efforts. It is either works, you can earn it, or faith, Jesus Christ earned it. It's only options, right? What the Bible says is that human works are filthy rags because no one's perfect except Jesus Christ and all our efforts are way, 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 way short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Only Jesus Christ provides the perfect sacrifice for sin because sin has to be paid for. John 14, 6, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life. This is the core controversy of every argument you will have with anybody about Christianity. No one will give you any grief if you say, Jesus Christ was a good man and he's a way to God. A way to God. Matter of fact, the Jehovah Witnesses retranslated the whole thing. Said a way instead of the way. Jesus Christ said, I am the only way to God. No Jesus, no salvation, no salvation, no heaven. So the gospel is exclusive, and that's what they're proclaiming here. And this lame man was healed in the name of Jesus. The same Jesus they had killed the same Jesus that God raised from the dead, the same Jesus, the only Jesus that could save. Verse 13, it says, how did they respond to Peter's indictment? It says, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and began to understand that they were uneducated and untrained. It doesn't mean they were stupid. It means they'd never been to rabbi school. I mean, they didn't have their PhD 
in Jewish studies, right? They were marveling. That means they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. It seems, when you look at this, that these leaders didn't immediately recognize that Peter and John were disciples of Jesus. I mean, they would literally have had no contact with them, right? When Jesus was on trial in front of this group, where were the disciples? They were in hiding. They had fled, so they'd, they'd probably never seen him before at that point in time. If you look at Peter and John, they're working class folks. They run a fishing business in the Sea of Galilee. They'd never been to rabbi school. They were probably literate, but not hugely literate by any stretch of the imagination. They didn't have a college degree in our parlance, any of that. They didn't speak well. And yet, this biblical presentation that Peter gave them blew the doors off these Jewish PhDs in the Sanhedrin, right? It was stunning. They finally put two and two together and figured out that they had been with Jesus. You know why they figured it out? They sounded like Jesus, right? They were speaking the same message. But what really was incredible is that the Holy Spirit of God gave them the words to say and brought the conviction to the Sanhedrin. One of the things that is so important for us to realize is it doesn't matter what your training is. I don't care how many, I know lots of college, I have people that have three and four degrees and no temperature. <laughs> right, I mean, they're, they got more book learning that is good for them, but they, have, they couldn't change a tire. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing academic knowledge. I'm a big believer in academic knowledge, but this is not about academic knowledge. This is being filled with the Spirit. This is being submissive to the Spirit. This is listening to the Spirit. And God spoke through Peter and accomplished this work together. And they proclaimed the same message Jesus had with the same boldness because they both were filled with the same Spirit. Surprise, surprise. Verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healing standing with them, they had what? Nothing to say. Who got shut up? Who got intimidated? Who got put in a very small corner? The Sanhedrin did. Now, if you're the Sanhedrin and you desperately want to shut this movement down, you know the best way to do it? Show them the body of Jesus. We got his body here, man. You're false. You're phony. You're liars. Do you think they'd scour Jerusalem for the body of Jesus? Oh, yeah. I bet they were digging up graves looking for the body of Jesus. Because if they could have shown up with the body of Jesus, they could have demonstrated to the world that the whole thing was false. Well, the body of Jesus is in heaven, right? Obviously. They knew that Jesus had been resurrected. They couldn't argue that this man had been miraculously healed because he'd been sitting in the same place for decades begging and clearly it's the same guy standing up in front of him, miraculously healed. So they couldn't argue with the power source of God at that point in time. They couldn't refute the argument of Peter and John. See, they thought they held the keys to heaven. Now Peter and John tell them, you don't have the keys to heaven. Jesus has them. You're not in charge. Ooh, that's tough for political leaders to listen. They're not in charge. Oh, right? He says, you've killed them. You need to repent. Here's the problem the Sanhedrin has. They can't argue with the miracle, but they can't prosecute Peter and John. For doing what? A good deed? 
If you go down here, go down to verse 21, it says, they were afraid to prosecute him because the crowds of people were giving glory to God for the miracle. And you want to come across looking like bah humbug Scrooge, prosecute the guy who did the miracle. That wouldn't set well with the crowds, right? Your voter base. I mean, come on, got to take care of the voter base. All they can do is try and shut them up. And verse 18, it says, they commanded them not to speak at all, teach it all in the name of Jesus. It's interesting, Robert Deffenbaugh, a wonderful commentator, says, people don't fail to believe for lack of evidence. They refuse to believe in spite of the evidence. That is really true. You have people in your life who know the evidence. They've heard, they've been here, they've listened to Pastor Roger. They don't want to believe. It's not that they don't have the evidence to believe because they love their sin. They don't want to give it up, right? They told him, shut up, verse 19 and 20. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. In essence, we're going to obey God. You decide whether this is a crime you're going to punish or not. Now, this was civil disobedience. Choosing to disobey man in order to obey God. Here's the principle. Civil disobedience is allowed only when obeying man would mean disobeying God. If you go to jail for disobeying government, the only thing you ought to be in jail for is the gospel. Don't go to jail for anything less. Right? If you're going to go to jail, go to jail for the gospel. That's the only thing that is worth going to jail for. See, we are commanded to obey those in authority over us, Romans 13. Government is given by God to restrain evil. Civil disobedience is the rare exception, it's not the norm. And even when we do choose to be involved in civil disobedience, our attitude should be one of submission, Peter and John's was. And when you're going to get involved in civil disobedience for the sake of the gospel, be willing to live with the consequences. And they were willing to. If you kill us, you kill us, right? How many times was Paul put in prison for the gospel? Did Paul ever say, I'm going to sue you. You don't have the right to put me in prison for the gospel. Is that what he said? No. He said it's part of the turf. If they persecuted Jesus, you think I'm going to go to prison for the gospel? Of course, right? Of course. How do you respond to persecution? Last half of chapter, actually chapter 4, verse 23 to 31 tells us how you respond to persecution. They had a prayer meeting. Here's the principle. Prayer is not phoning for room service. It's calling for battlefield reinforcements. I could say that any number of ways, but that you get the picture. They're being persecuted. They're being threatened. They have a prayer meeting in verse 24. And their prayer meeting doesn't start out with whining. Right? Their prayer meeting doesn't start out with, oh God, life is so hard. I just, it starts out with praise, right? What do they do? They, they, the, first of all, in verse 24, they say, oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. You know why that's important to remember? Who's the creator? Who owns this joint called the universe? Who runs it? Who's in charge of every detail of it? The most important truth to remember today is that God, the creator, is in complete control of everything, including your circumstances and your children and your grandchildren and your health and your marriage and your fill in the blank. Who's in charge? 
We get anxious and nervous when we think we're in charge because we know we're not smart enough to figure it out. And God says, where did you ever get the notion that you're in charge? Do you look like you can handle it? And you look in the mirror and you go, oh, no, doesn't look like God to me. Looks like an aging man, right? Wrinkles are multiplying. I don't think God has wrinkles, right? Never forget who's in control, right? When you forget who's in control, you start getting nervous. So God's in charge. Number two, they expected opposition to the gospel. Verse 26, it says, The kings of the earth took their stand. They were gathered against Jesus Christ. They persecuted Jesus. They're going to persecute us, of course. And lastly, what did they ask for? Verse 29. They didn't ask God to send lightning bolts down and kill the enemies. They didn't ask for comfort. They asked for boldness. And now, Lord God, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence or boldness. You know, <clears throat> don't pray for a pain-free, passive life. Pray for power to proclaim God's truth on the battlefield of life. They didn't whine to God about the opposition. They prayed for boldness in the face of the opposition. All right, let's review. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be in chapter five. Number one, our Father knows best. He gives us what He knows we need. Now, who knows better than you what you need? So when you finish praying, you should say, Thy will be done, right? Lord, whatever you want to have happen, however you want to process this request, Thy will be done. Has God ever answered your prayers in surprising ways? Yes? Do you think He's going to continue to answer prayers in surprising ways? Because He knows what you need. He's going to give you Himself, which is the main thing you need. Number two, the gospel is exclusive. The one and only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. That is the message of the good news. Don't ever forget it. Number three, civil disobedience is allowed only when obeying man would mean disobeying God. And number four, prayer is not phoning for room service. Prayer is calling for battlefield reinforcements. You know what that assumes? You're on the battlefield, right? What have we said in this class multiple times? This life is not Disneyland, it's Afghanistan, right? So if you're in the battlefield of life, you don't worry about room service. You need reinforcements, right? Remember the paradigm that we're living under. Okay, now that you know, go and do.